You know, it's a beautiful day here in Charlotte. But, you know, the world is actually under a cloud right now, a cloud of this uh, coronavirus that has basically shut the world down. It's almost hard to believe. But, you know, the, the crisis is not just about the disease. The crisis involves a lot of fear and anxiety and confusion that's been created by the threat of the disease. In other words, I might get it, somebody I love might get it. And there's also quite a bit of uncertainty today due to the loss of jobs, the closing of schools and businesses, hospitals supposedly are jammed, some are and some are not. It depends where you are in the country. But the world has been suddenly just turned upside down. You know, a couple months ago, things seemed to be going along strong, and all of a sudden, everything came to a screeching halt. And these fears are fanned by daily reports of more cases, uh, daily reports of more people dying. Uh, it's been frightening to a lot of people. It's been frightening to a lot of people, and many people are wondering, where is this going to go? Where is this all leading is the end of the world really coming? And some people actually are worried about those things. But, you know, I got a very interesting email this past week from an individual I've known for some years. And he made the comment, he said in his email, he said, with so many anxious people looking for answers, it is an incredible blessing to know the outcome. It's an incredible blessing to know that God has a plan, he's got a purpose, and he's working out on this earth. And he said it's a blessing to understand the good news of the coming kingdom of God and to realize we have the privilege of sharing this good news with a lot of people that are very confused in this world. You know, the Bible not only gives us a sense of hope, it not only gives us a sense of hope, but it offers us a very unique perspective on major events that have happened in the past, major events that are happening in the world today. And this is a dimension that's literally missing from the news today. You don't hear this on CNN. You don't hear it on Fox News. You don't hear it on some of the big programs. The Bible also contains lessons that we can learn now and then use in the coming kingdom of God to teach people why these calamities occur and how to prevent the problems that have had an incredible impact on the world down through history. In the sermon today, I want to focus on several catastrophic events, big deals, things that have impacted the world. I want to talk about some of these things. These events have impacted people, they've impacted cities, and they've impacted the entire world. I want to focus on some of these things today, and hopefully we can learn some lessons as we go through the sermon today so that you can prepare for some very exciting responsibilities in the coming kingdom of God where you're going to have a chance to literally change the world. And I've entitled the sermon, The Bible, History, and Catastrophes. The Bible, History, and Catastrophes. 
To begin with, I'd like to talk just a little bit about the Bible, this book that we look into, that we read, we talk about every Sabbath. The Bible contains history. It's a history book. But it's more than just a record of history. It's more than just a record of history. You know, historians talk about facts and about opinions. Facts and opinions. Different historians have different opinions about what different events mean. Historians talk about uh, what. They talk about who. They talk about when. They talk about where. And sometimes they talk about why. And sometimes they make up their own ideas, <laughs> try to explain things. You know, let me get, you can mention the Spanish Armada for just a minute. The Spanish Armada was an incredible event. Philip II, he's the who, put together a huge armada of ships. Um, the encounter took place in the English Channel. The people in the continent have a little bit different names for that. <laughs> but the people in Britain call it the English Channel. Uh, but they were encountered by the British fleet. His reason for mounting the what would hope to be an invasion of England was to bring Protestant England back into the Catholic fold. That was kind of the why. When? It took place in 1588. Now, that's what historians will tell you, secular historians. But they leave out some very important reasons as to why. Your God has a plan. He was working out. The reason the English won or came out the victory, victor, came out victorious in the uh, Spanish Armada situation. God made some promises to Abraham and into Isaac and Jacob that they were eventually to become a nation that would spread all around the world. You know, if the Spanish had succeeded in invading England, this wouldn't have happened. But God has a plan that he's working out on this earth. You know, the Bible offers us not just history, but a theological perspective on history. A theological perspective. God's perspective on historical events. This is what we find in the scriptures. The Bible also records important lessons that human beings need to learn for their own good. This is why these historical events are talked about. Because we need to learn some lessons, because we're going to become teachers in the coming kingdom of God. Part of our job is going to be to explain, this is the way, walk you in it. These are the consequences if you go in a different direction. Another perspective we find in the Bible It's what is called a Deuteronomistic history. Now, what does that mean? Your Deuteronomy and Leviticus have a couple of chapters, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, that are blessings and cursings, that if you obey God, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey God, there are going to be consequences. This is a Deuteronomistic theme, a theme from Deuteronomy that literally runs through the Old Testament, runs through the New Testament. And as parents, we try and teach our kids the same thing. (laughs) If you listen to mom and dad, things will go better. If you don't, there will be consequences. 
But as adults, we have the same lessons to learn. If we don't follow God's way, if we try and reason around it, things are not going to go well. So that's another one of the lessons that we learn from the Old Testament. Turn, if you would, to Job, Job chapter 12 and verses 23 through 27. Another lesson to learn from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. We break in here, it says that he, God, makes nations great and he destroys them. In other words, he makes nations great and he brings nations down. People have lost that perspective today. Secular history doesn't go in this direction, but the Bible does. It says God makes nations great, he destroys them, he enlarges nations, and he guides them. God literally intervenes in human history. You can read this in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, also Daniel 4, uh, verses 17, 25, and a couple of others where God literally tells us, you know, Daniel was telling Nebuchadnezzar these things, that there is a God in heaven who guides the course of history. He brings nations up at certain times and he brings nations down at certain times for specific reasons. If they turn away from God, there will be consequences. Uh, If they're righteous and striving to obey God, then there will be blessings. So God guides the course of history. That's a lesson we need to take away from the scriptures. The Deuteronomistic history, the fact that God blesses for obedience, he brings consequences for disobedience, another lesson from the Bible. And turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, another lesson here, just talking about lessons we can get from the scriptures. These are lessons we have to learn as individuals. These are lessons that we're going to be sharing with the world when Jesus Christ comes back to begin to reign on this earth. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, now Moses was giving advice to the children of Israel that had come out of the land of Egypt. Actually, he's talking to the second generation of Israelites before they went into the promised land. But he's kind of rehearsing the covenant, reviewing the covenant. But he says here in verse 9, "...only take heed to yourself." And diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. He's talking to basically young people that now some 40 years later preparing to go into the promised land. He said, this is what your mom and dad told you about. These are things that they saw, and if you're old enough, you remember them too. Remember the things that you've seen, lest they depart from your heart, lest you forget about these things. All the days of your life, teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. Then go to uh, Deuteronomy 15, verse 15. Deuteronomy 15 and verse 15. Again, talking to the same group of Israelites. He said, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord, your God, redeemed you. He saved you. He brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, I command you this day, basically, to obey God, to love God, and to do what he says. Now, these are lessons that we can pull from the Old Testament. But what about a couple of lessons from the New Testament? Mr. Weston went into this, and I think some other men have also gone into this in in recent sermons. But go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
You know, many people are told today that the Old Testament is it's kind of nice, has some nice stories, but it really doesn't relate to uh, professing Christians today. It's not something we have to worry about. But that's not what Paul was saying. Paul has a very different message that he's leaving with New Testament Christians. Verse 1 of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians says, Moreover, brethren, now he's writing to more of a Gentile audience, but he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. He's talking about their movement through the Red Sea. He said, Remember these things. Um, He said, They drank of the same spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Jesus Christ was the God of the Old Testament that gave the Ten Commandments, that intervened in history from time to time. But down in verse 11, then Paul makes a summary statement. He says, now all these things, and he gave several examples here of Old Testament uh, historical events. He says, now all these things happened to them as examples, examples. And they were written for our admonition. Paul is talking to New Testament Christians. All these things happen as examples for us. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. This is not just Paul's generation. This is us today. These things are here for our admonition. So hopefully we can learn from these examples and then share these lessons with whoever we're working with, whether it's in this um, church age today or whether it's in the coming kingdom of God. These are here for our admonition. One other verse while we're here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, down in verse 13. And again, we're facing some trials today because of this COVID uh, virus situation. We're also facing trials in many other ways. But Paul makes the statement here, no temptation, no trial has overtaken you except such as common to to man. Now, we all have our problems and trials and challenges. But he says, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able to bear, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may able to bear it. You know, these are things to think about, things to pray about. You know, Paul also mentions in Romans 8.28 that all things work to the good, even the trials and tribulations that come along, that we may not like it. We may uh, wonder, why is God letting this happen to me? But he said, all things work to the good for those that are called according to the purpose of God. God is molding and fashioning each one of us. He has an idea how he wants to use us, not only now, but in the coming kingdom of God. And he knows that we need to be prepared. We need to be molded and fashioned and prepared so that he can use us as instruments in his hands. And that's comforting to know whenever things get difficult. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and especially verse 13, because I want to keep coming back to this as we go through the sermon today. These examples are here for us today. They're historical examples. And I want to just mention a couple of other scriptures very quickly. In Luke chapter 17, Luke chapter 17, 
verses about 24 to 27, where Jesus is actually admonishing the Pharisees about lessons of history. He's admonishing the Pharisees about lessons of history. He said, you guys forgot your own history. You need to remember some things. Now let me march you through some things. You need to understand these things. In Acts chapter 7 and 8, Stephen also uses history, history examples from history, to admonish the Jewish leaders. He starts with Abraham and goes through the history of the Old Testament. He said, you guys are forgetting all these things. They listen. They had to acknowledge he was telling the truth, but they didn't like what they were hearing. They didn't like what they were hearing. They stoned him. You know, we have a message to deliver today, too. Uh, some people will find it, as you heard in the announcements. Wow, this is very, this is exciting. Wow, I really appreciate this, but not everybody's going to uh, respond that way. People are going to get set on edge. They don't want to be told they're wrong. They don't want to be told that the Bible really is talking about us today. Those prophecies in the Old Testament apply to us. You mean I shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that? They're not going to like that. They didn't like what Jeremiah said. They didn't like what Isaiah said. But they had a message to deliver. We have a message to deliver. And we need to pray that God will open doors so that we can do that. Brethren, the implication from these scriptures that we've just been talking about, the Old Testament and the New Testament, are basically that we need to learn the lessons of history that God wants us to remember. Not only learn them, but remember them. So we can use these lessons as a prod on ourselves. You know, we're going to talk about some examples today that God delivered certain people and they slipped back into their old ways again and again and again. So we don't want to do that. We want to learn. So we want to learn the lessons of history so that we can use these lessons to teach others, especially about what God says is important. So let's look then at some examples of major catastrophes that are recorded in the Bible. And let's focus on lessons that God wants us to learn. That's why these examples are there in the scriptures. We're going to learn as we go through these examples how sinful human actions led to major catastrophes that had an impact on people, an impact on cities, and had an impact on the world. You know, we're going to be dealing with people that live into the coming kingdom of God. We're going to be dealing with people that come up in the second resurrection. They're going to need to understand what happened. Why did these things happen? What can I learn so that I can then share these lessons with other people? So let's look at a couple of examples of catastrophes that occurred in history that we found written in the Bible and lessons that we can learn. Let's go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Jesus is talking here. He was asked, what's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You're just like some people today are asking, is this coronavirus uh, going to bring the return of Jesus Christ? Is this the end of the world is coming to pass? Is it going to happen in my lifetime? There are other uh, prophecies that give a little bit more perspective, but I just want to focus here on Matthew 24. Verse 3, his disciples asked him, tell us what will be the sign, when will these things be, the downfall of the temple and so on, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
And then Jesus goes through a number of things, wars, rumors of wars, false religions, famines, pestilences, and so on. But in verse 36, he says, But of that day and hour no one knows. Nobody knows when it's actually going to come. But he talked about watching for signs. In verse 37, but he says, But as in the days of Noah were, or as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Just like conditions in society were like a Noah's day, they're going to be very similar in days just before Jesus Christ returns. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to be just the same. People were surprised in Noah's day. People are going to be surprised today when things begin to happen. And some people are rightly concerned because they can read these scriptures. They recognize things are not normal. When you shut down the world for a month or more at a time, this has never happened before in our day. I don't think it happened in Noah's day either. (laughs) But these things are happening. People recognize this is different. This is not normal. But keep in mind here, it says, in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, and they were just carrying on. And when we go back to Genesis 6 and read about this a little bit, they were having parties. They were having a good time. And this marrying and giving in marriage, there's there's some things that are very negative about those things. Um, You know, they were marrying. uh, let's, Let's go back to Genesis 6 and pick up the theme back there. Pick up the flavor of what's happening back there. Genesis chapter 6. Because Moses gives us a perspective of what was going on, what it was like in Noah's day. Uh, Verse 6, it says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of man saw the daughters of men. This is not angels uh, chasing women. This is human beings. Uh, um, Cain's line in one particular case. They saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives uh, for themselves of whom they chose. Now, Matthew 24 talks about marrying and giving in marriage. What we've taught over the years is that they were probably marrying interracially, where God says, don't do those things, but they were doing it. When you put this in a modern perspective of taking a wife uh, whom you desire, it could be a woman desiring another woman. It could be a man desiring another man whom you desire. I mean, these these things don't change. Human beings go off in different tangents. Uh, Then it talks about in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is what... Moses is describing of the times in which Noah lived. Down in verse um, 11, the earth was corrupt before God and was filled with violence, and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh. Every human being, every part of society had corrupted their way on earth. 
And again, it mentions verse 13, the earth was filled with violence. That was the world that God intervened and brought to a screeching halt. And when you look around today, what's happening in the world, what's happening on television, what's happening on the Internet, all kinds of weird, perverted things are happening and being accepted as normal today. And if you say anything negative, you're accused of hate speech. What's the matter with you? You're not tolerating everything. You're not going along with everybody else. This is the world we're living in today. But, you know, we can also read here in uh, verse 8 and 9, back in Genesis 6, says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. You know, you find grace in the eyes of God. You find grace in the eyes of your parents. <laughs> you find grace in the eyes of your boss when you get along with people whenever you're not creating a lot of problems, whenever you're pouring oil on troubled waters, not gasoline on troubled waters. You can find grace in God's sight when you obey his commandments. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man. He was a righteous man, perfect in his generations, and he walked with God. He was a standout in his generation. God had a purpose for calling a man like this. He had a purpose for a man like this. He told Noah to build an ark. Now, when you put this in perspective, this was not a backyard canoe. This was not a boat that we put on a trailer and park in our driveway. Look up the dimensions of the ark. It was over 450 feet long. I think it was about 50 feet wide uh, and about, what, 50, 60, 70, 80 feet tall. Or was it the other? But it was a big boat. If you've been up to uh, northern Kentucky and saw the scale model of the ark, not a scaled-down model of the ark, but a scaled model of the ark, it's bigger than a football field. It would hang off of both ends of the field. And it's up about four stories high, three or four stories high. Uh, it's huge. And I don't think when you think about it, he had to have a workforce to build it. Noah and a couple of sons would not have built that. You know, the beams in the ark up there in Kentucky, those beams are like a foot wide or more. They're not going to lift that. You had to have a workforce. And this must have taken decades to build You might think, well, they probably could build it in a couple of weeks. No, you don't build even the ark up in in northern Kentucky. It took them several years with cranes and and, uh, all kinds of machines to build that. You might wonder, what happened to the workforce? What happened to the people that worked on the ark? I was talking with Dr. Meredith one time. At one time, we had three campuses of Ambassador College. One was in Pasadena, one was in Big Sandy, and one was in Brickett Wood. And when we closed those campuses for various reasons at different times, people who had worked there for 10, 15, 20 years just disappeared. They just disappeared. They were part of the work, but they've gone off in different directions. What happened to the people that were helping Noah build the ark? There was only about eight people on the ark, I think. What happened to the others? 
Where did they go? You know, it took people in Europe hundreds of years, two, three hundred years to build these cathedrals. It was a long time. And apparently it took Noah probably somewhere involving a hundred years. Notice quickly here in Deuteronomy 5, verse 32, it says, Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Then over in chapter 6, in verse 6, it says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. And then verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, uh, the fountains of the deep were broken up. So whether he took 100 years or some phase of that, you know, we'll find out at some point in time. But Noah had a ministry that appeared to stretch over using the, the biblical uh, benchmarks here of about a hundred years. You know, it's interesting. God called a man by the name of Herbert Armstrong. He began working with him in the 1920s. He started a church, and we are now 2020, and we're seeing the coronavirus <laughs> beginning to rattle around the world, and people are wondering, are we getting close? It's going to be interesting to see if there's a parallel. You know, Noah had a ministry that lasted about 100 years. It'll be interesting to see how long our ministry lasts today. You know, the message that comes from these verses is that Noah was called out of a totally perverted society where every thought was evil. And you look around today, it's hard to look at anything on television. It's hard to read certain things, listen to conversations because of the total perversion. Total perversion. You know, the American Congress is considering a bill right now called an Equality Act. And it's basically uh, to give equality to homosexuals, to people, to men that think they're women, that they can use a women's bathroom, to women that think they're men, probably fewer of those, <laughs> but they can use men's bathrooms and showers and so on. And one of the congressmen made a comment but basically along the lines of religious ideas should not interfere with the freedoms of uh, gays and lesbians and so on. Basically what Congress, some people in Congress are saying, is religious ideas should not count. We should be able to do whatever we want and cater to the needs of everyone. I think it was Charles Dobson made the comment, this bill, if passed, will destroy religious, uh, um, what's the word I want, religious freedoms or religious uh, uh, limitations. But it, this is the world we're living in, and this is Congress. This is Congress. And if these laws are passed, then it's going to impact churches, it's going to impact personal beliefs and actions and ideas. But this is the world that we're living in. But God destroyed that ancient world. He brought it to a screeching halt. These examples are in the Bible as admonitions for us today. The same thing is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. But let's get back to uh, the scripture we mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. God gave Noah and his family a way of escape. He said, you build the ark. 
you build the ark, and that's going to save you and your family from this totally perverted world that came to a very sudden end. A very sudden end. You know, Jesus warns about six or seven times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He says to watch and be ready. Watch and be ready. You watch for events that are prophesied and you get yourself ready. And not, it's not just about personal salvation. We have been called to prepare to change the world, to teach human beings God's way of life. And we can use that time now to prepare for that opportunity. But we also need to remember what happened to Noah after the flood. What happened to Noah after the waters disappeared? He got drunk. And some old behaviors cropped up again among some of his descendants. We, we need to take that to heart. We need to take that to heart. So in terms of lessons from Catastrophe 1, Noah and the Flood, that God destroyed very suddenly a totally perverted society. And it appears he took about a 100 years to provide a witness. When you build something as big as the ark, and it's not only in your backyard, but it takes up half the city that you live in, <laughs> uh, you can't ignore those things. It was a witness to that generation. It was a witness to that generation. Look up the scriptures on your own. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 15. Second Peter 2.15, it says, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Psalm 119, verse 172 says, All thy commandments are righteousness. When we talk about righteousness, we're talking about the commandments of God. But look up another scripture in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. And we'll come back to this again a little bit later. Not only was Noah a preacher of righteousness, Hebrews 11, chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 11 and verse 7. It says, But Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with a godly fear. God told him to build an ark. He didn't argue about it. He just started building. And apparently put together, he had to put a pretty good sized workforce together to do that. Moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world. You know, people probably ask Noah, what are you building that big thing for? He said, because there's going to be a flood. It's going to wipe all of you out. Oh, come on, Noah. It doesn't rain that much around here. Tell me another one. But the floods came. People did not get on the ark. What happened to his workforce? They weren't on it either. He condemned the world because of his conduct, because of his teachings. You know, Isaiah, we're told in Isaiah 58, verse 1, to cry aloud and spare not and show my people their sins. Show them what the consequences are going to be so that they can change. In all probability, he was doing those things. And they probably felt, get on the ark, Noah. <laughs> get rid of you one way or the other. Get on the ark. Hope it will rain. Then we won't see you anymore. I mean, just put this stuff in context. He condemned the world 
and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. God preserved him. And one of these days, I think, in the second resurrection, maybe in the first resurrection, Noah may be giving a Bible study over the Internet to the world. You wonder what it was like? Let me tell you what it was like. You wonder why the Israelite nations have gone down the tubes? Let me tell you why you went down the tubes. I saw the same thing happen several thousand years before that. Human nature doesn't change. You can look them in the eye and tell them, you guys need to repent and change. If you made it through the tribulation, if you want to be used in the coming kingdom of God, be in the kingdom of God, you better get your act together. It's going to be a very powerful witness. But keep in mind, Noah slipped up. I would hope that he repented. We would assume that so that God can use him. Hey, look at catastrophe number two. Catastrophe number two was Sodom and Gomorrah. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there are lessons there for us today. Let's go back to uh, Luke chapter 17. And here we find again Jesus Christ referring to examples from the Old Testament that were recorded in the scriptures. He made sure that those examples were there because they contain a very powerful lesson. In Luke chapter 17, again, he's warning his particular generation when he was living for a century. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man, where they ate, drank, and uh, giving in marriage until the day that Noah went into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, and they sold, they planted, and they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed." So another parallel. When Christ returns, situation is going to be on earth very similar to what it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you go back to Genesis 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, you can read the story. I would encourage you to do that. It's interesting just skipping over this and looking at it very quickly. Genesis 13, Lot and his, his, uh, his, his um, servants got into a little, the servants, basically, of Lot, got into a tussle with the servants of Abraham. And Abraham says, look, you guys go one way and we'll go another way. And you take the choice. You take the choice. You know, Abraham was big-minded. He knew that God was working out a plan and purpose. So Lot looked over things and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were in a very well-watered plain. Hey, that looks pretty cool. It's green over there. It's green over there. Uh, it was well-watered. He could say, well, it's going it's to be a good life if I go in that direction. Um, in fact, that's probably where the action is. It's going to be a lot of fun to live over there. A lot of things happening. Anyways, he went over in that direction. Genesis 14. A war broke out. Uh, he was taken prisoner. Had to be rescued by... Uh, Abraham. Then we get to Genesis 18, where Abraham is visited by some angels. And they start talking, and 
you know, the, the account there is, you know, can I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? Because he's my friend. It appears to be Jesus Christ talking. He said, we're going to have to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. They're immoral places. We're going to have to do something about that. We're going to have to destroy Sodom. Now, when you read the account, Abraham must have known what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. He must have known, because then he begins negotiating, because his nephew Lot was over there, and Lot's family was over there, and his daughters were over there. And when he hears this message that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed, then he starts asking, well, God, would you destroy them if there's 50 righteous people there? And the answer is, well, no. Well, what about 45? Well, no. What about 30? Well, no. What about 20? Well, no. What about 10? And that would cover a lot as <laughs> a family. And the conversation breaks off at that point. Well, no, if there's ten. But Abraham must have known the situation that was taking place over there. Otherwise, why negotiate? He must have known. And then you could speculate here too. Did the angels go immediately to Sodom and Gomorrah? Or did they maybe take a couple of days to get there? And Abraham sends a servant over there, Lot, you better get out. There's people coming. They're going to tell you. Anyways, when the angels arrive, they recognized uh, Lot and recognized, he recognized they were somebody. He recognized they were somebody. He had a visit with, right, a TWP down in, in another country. And I was told by one of the parents, I uh, said, my son is going to be there. And I said, well, I'm looking forward to meeting him. And somebody, I think somebody told me who he was, or I might have just noticed, because you notice resemblances between fathers and sons. <laughs> and I went up to this young, this individual, and I said, are you so-and-so? He said, yeah, how did you know? He said, you came right up to me. <laughs> I said, you look like your dad. But um, <clears throat> uh, did... Abraham sent a message ahead. You know, we don't know. I'm just, just talking about things here. If the angels came right away, uh, it was obvious that uh, they wanted to get something done. But anyways, the angels come into town, and Lot says, and again, he recognized them. He realized they were important people. Uh, he said, you know, how about dinner? And how about staying with me tonight? And he said, no, we're just going to sleep in a park. We're going to sleep in a square here. Lot's immediate reaction was, no, no, you can't do that. Well, why not? No, you can't do that. You come in and have some dinner. But the people in the town or the city said, bring those people out here, those guys that came here. We want to have a relationship with them, not a good relationship. We want to get to know them. And Lot goes out and said, look, 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 calm down. I've got two daughters you can have. Now, Lot is called a righteous man. But notice what his perspective, what had happened to his perspective living in this environment. You know, if you're a parent with daughters, can you picture yourself saying that? No way. 
but his perspective was influenced by the environment that he was living in. It seeps in. I remember talking with a lady one time (laughs) who belonged to a church where they believed it was wrong to drink coffee and tea. And I asked her, I said, do you drink coffee and tea? And she, well, it sneaks in sometimes. It just sneaks in sometimes. She was influenced, too, by her taste buds (laughs) that prevailed over her belief system. Uh, It's interesting how the environment influences. Anyways, the angels had to reach outside and grab Lot and pull him back in. And then they blinded the people that were out there. Now, keep in mind, Lot's daughters and possibly son-in-laws were watching all this happening. They realized what was happening. Anyways, apparently the angels told the family, we're going to destroy this place in the morning and you guys need to be out of here. You need to get out of here. But the implication is the sun came up and they had to grab the hands of Lot and his wife and the daughters and begin dragging them out away from the city. And again, God provided a way out for Lot. God provided a way of escape for Lot, and that was basically to get out of town. Get out of town. I'd like you to notice a scripture in uh, a couple of scriptures here quickly. In Genesis uh, chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. And it's easy to read over these things, but as you go back and read through them again, it's, it's, it's interesting to contemplate what was going on here. Your lot had chosen to live in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. Watered plain, uh, good life, uh, things going very well, uh, and then things began to happen. The angels show up. Uh, they want to get at these men that came in. Uh, Lot says no. But in verse 9, it says, They said, Stand back. They're talking to Lot. Get out of the way. This one or these people came to stay here. Oh, no, it's talking about Lot in this case. They said, this one, Lot, this guy, came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. You look at this in some other translation. This guy's a foreigner. He came in from another city or another place, and he's trying to tell us what to do. He's acting like a judge for us. Now, we will deal worse with you than with them, talking to Lot. So they pressed hard against him, the man Lot, and they came near to breaking down the door, and then the angels reach out and pull him inside. That's one account of Lot, that he was a righteous person, but an outsider, living in a perverted society. Now let's go to Second Peter. Second Peter, back to where we were once before. Second Peter chapter 2, learning a little bit more about Lot. And the environment that he was living in, you know, we're living in an environment today that's not the best. Second Peter chapter 2, um, verse 5, it said, He did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, beginning in the flood uh, that came on the ungodly world, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. You might want to go on the Internet, look at the geographical area where Sodom and Gomorrah are. It's desolate today. Hardly anything grows there. It's really desolate. 
Uh, and there's some areas where they think Sodom was and Gomorrah was, but uh, it, it's just hunks of dirt. Um, anyways, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live uh, in an ungodly way, and delivered righteous Lot. Now, this has got to be a relative term. He's called a righteous person, but here's a righteous person that was ready to give his daughters to this mob of homosexuals. Uh, he's, he's been influenced by his environment, but he was called a righteous person who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man uh, dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawlessness. He knew it was wrong. Uh, believed it was wrong, but again, his judgment was influenced by the people that he was around. But he got, he was given a way of escape. He was allowed to leave, actually had to be pushed out of town. And there seems to have been some reluctance to leave this, <laughs> this wonderful society. You know, you look around in our society today, you know, in traveling to um, some of the places around the world that we've been to, you get out into the rural areas of Africa and the Caribbean and some other places like that. You go into a town, there's, there's no pavement on the road. You look in a store that's a grocery store that might be 12 by 12 or 15 by 15. There's two by fours for shelves. They've got some bags of uh, rice, some bags of beans, maybe some bread, uh, maybe some wheat and some soft drinks. And if the delivery truck doesn't get there for you know, a couple of days, there's nothing there. And then we come back home to the United States or Australia or to Africa or Canada, and you walk into these supermarkets, you need a binoculars to look down at the end of the aisle. <laughs> it's just loaded with things. It's just loaded with things. You know, we take an awful lot for granted today. But <clears throat> Lot was influenced by the environment that he was around. But he's called a righteous man. He was frustrated by what he saw. Now, it's interesting when you read some of the things that wind up in the press today. They mentioned that, well, you know, homosexuality was not really the problem in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And they said, well, you have to go to uh, Ezekiel to find out what the real problems were. So let's go to Ezekiel, chapter 16. Ezekiel, chapter 16. We're just a brief reference here in verses 49 and 50 to Sodom and Gomorrah. But it doesn't say what people like to think or want to make it say. Isaiah, excuse me, Ezekiel 16. Beginning in verse 49, it says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Now what's happening here, Ezekiel is comparing the Israelite peoples uh, to Sodom. So he says, uh, neither your sister Sodom, <clears throat> here we go. This is the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride. Now these are some of the things that they list for the problems in Sodom and Gomorrah. Pride, in other words, you think you know all the answers. Fullness of food. <laughs> We've got incredible amounts of food today. That's why so many Americans are uh, way overweight because they consume uh, an awful lot of food. Fullness of food and abundance of idleness. 
We talk about leisure time today, leisure centers today, <laughs> leisure clothes that we wear. Uh, this is the world we live in today. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor or the needy. And notice the next one, verse 50. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Uh, therefore, I took them away as I saw. Okay, they were committing abominations. What's an abomination? You go back to Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 20. He says, you should not marry another man or marry another woman. So this is an abomination. And it's not just that, well, that's, that's not very nice, but, you know, we'll just not say much about it. God doesn't approach it that way. He said, this is an abomination, and I'm going to destroy. I did destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'm going to bring down and destroy the Israelite nations today that we are promoting these things all around the world. I was in the Caribbean one time and was talking to one of the individuals down there. And he said, what's it like down here? He said, it's a very nice place, but these Europeans and Americans come down here and want to run around without any clothes on. He said, we don't like that. We don't like them bringing those things in here. You know, the American president went back to Kenya some time ago, and he was trying to pressure them into promoting homosexuality. He said, you go home. We don't want that here. Don't bring those things here. And some people are still trying to hold on to certain values. You know, God does not take these things that we're doing today about homosexuality and toleration and all this stuff. He does not take that easy. There are going to be consequences. So very quickly, the lessons from Sodom and Gomorrah. One would be God provided a way of escape for uh, <clears throat> Lot and his family. Some of the family didn't take it. His wife looked back. I just put up new curtains and, oh, this is going to go. You know, we've had people today that don't want to come out of this world. Second Corinthians chapter 6, I think it is, about verse 17 says, Come out from among them. Leave. Get away from these things. And I think we need to be praying, too, that God would intervene, that we'd bring this mess to a conclusion sooner than later. God provided a way of escape before it was totally destroyed. You can look up the prophecies in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through about 10, where it says, Your sins, talking about Israelite nations, are like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, somebody might think that's a stretch. But, you know, Robert Bork, was a lawyer, was nominated for the Supreme Court, but he was... <laughs> Borked. He was, he was not approved because it's conservative. But he wrote a book, and it's about 10, 15 years ago. It was, the title of the book was Slouching Towards Gomorrah. Describing America, slouching towards Gomorrah. And he was talking about women's lib, and he was talking about homosexuality, he was talking about a bunch of these things. David Capellian uh, is a writer, a journalist, a publisher wrote a book entitled uh, Marketing of Evil. He said, we're marketing these things, using marketing techniques to promote these behaviors. He doesn't call them abominations, but I think he believes that they are that way. Let's look at a couple of other scriptures and then we'll move on. Deuteronomy chapter 28. 
Again, back to this Deuteronomistic history, the fact that if you obey God, there's going to be blessings. If you don't obey God, there will be consequences. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, it says, It will come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, these curses are going to come upon you. And down in verse 20, it says, The Lord will send upon you cursing. In other words, curses will come. Confusion will come. You look at what's being written about the COVID virus today. Some are saying it's this. Some are saying it's that. One expert says this. One expert says that. And people get flustered. I don't know who to believe, what to believe. God said, I'm going to bring confusion on you. Confusion on you. Then he talks about plagues and talks about fevers uh, are going to be coming as part of these plagues. And it's going to happen suddenly. He says, all these things are going to become... On everything you set your hand to do, these things are going to come upon you until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings. The flood came quickly. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah came quickly. Remains to be seen how quickly, you know, America and some of the other nations go down the tubes. Go back to Leviticus 26. Again, the same type of uh, warnings are there. You obey, you're going to be blessed. Uh, If you disobey, there are going to be consequences. Leviticus 26 and verse, start in verse 21, verse 19, for example. Uh, I'm going to break the pride of your power. Heavens are going to be like iron, the earth like bronze. There's going to be droughts and famines. Uh, Verse 21, if you walk contrary to me, and are not willing to obey me, I'm going to bring seven times more plagues on you. Verse 22, I will send wild beasts among you. They will rob you of your children, destroy your livestock. In other words, diseases that will affect the livestock and also people. And this coronavirus seems to be linked with uh, animals that have either been eaten or in close contact with human beings, and your highways shall be desolate. It talks about wild beasts coming upon you. There's been some interesting articles show up on the Internet uh, about wild beasts. Whenever you stop moving people around, when they stop driving on the highways, animals use the highways. <laughs> I saw one picture of wild goats walking down the main street in Clandudno, North Wales, where we had the feast. As the cable car goes up the hill, and I've seen those wild goats up in the hill. Now they're walking down the main street in the town because there's no traffic there. And this is happening in other places in Spain, places in England, where there's nobody on the street, so these animals come in. If you're up in Massachusetts and places like that, the wild deer will bring uh, Lyme disease and, and the, par- the, uh, the, the ticks and so on that pass that. But we're seeing these things happening today. We're seeing these things happening today. And the highways are becoming desolate. Let's look at one other uh, catastrophe. And this was uh, Egypt and the Exodus. Now, we just went through the Passover, so you're familiar with this story. But what I want to focus on here is that God brought Jacob and Joseph and the Israelites down to Egypt to preserve them. But he also had a bigger mission than just 
preserving them. They were settled in the land of Goshen, which was really the best part of uh, Egypt, kind of the northeast delta area, a very uh, good area to live in. And then after decades, they were enslaved. After decades, they were enslaved and began to suffer and cry out to God. Now, God was preparing a deliverer in Moses, but he took 40 years preparing Moses in Egypt. And all this time, uh, the Israelites were suffering and crying out to God. And then he said, you know, Moses, you need 40 more years of training. Now, put yourself in the Israelites' shoes. 40 more years of this while Moses is being prepared? And then Moses comes back, and he's not welcomed. He kind of shows up and says, well, here, I'm here to save you. (laughs) Who are you? We're not interested in this. Uh, Anyways, uh, God used the plagues on Egypt to basically deliver the Israelites from Egypt. He used that to get their attention. But again, his focus was not just on the Israelites. His focus was on this nation of Egypt, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And when you read in uh, Exodus, let's just look at it quick, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11, we can see part of the bigger purpose of these plagues on Egypt. And you can check this on the Internet. You can look it up in Bible helps, you know, Bible uh, dictionaries and so on. In uh, Exodus chapter 12, in verse 12, it says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, the night of the Passover, and will strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt, that both men and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. These plagues were brought on the Egyptians to show that their gods were powerless. You can look up the charts on the Internet and some of these other places where each one of these plagues, the frogs and the lice and the darkness and so on, were targeted at a specific god or goddesses in Egypt. So God was showing this whole nation, you think your gods are powerful? They have no power to stand in front of the true God. So while the Israelites were uh, saved out of Egypt, they left behind some very powerful lessons. And these Egyptians are going to come up in a resurrection. And they were going, they will learn why these plagues came. So you might want to look at those. The, another lesson here is that the Israelites had to experience the first three plagues. They had to experience the first three plagues. But they were saved from the last seven plagues. They had to endure uh, the water turning into blood. So they probably had water in their kitchens or wherever. They go out to have a drink. Ah, this is blood. What happened? And then they had to deal with the frogs that started hopping into the bedroom and hopping through the kitchen and hopping all over the place. And then they died. And it stunk. And they had to deal with that. And then come the uh, lice. They had to deal with this stuff. But then God began to separate them. And the, the, the priests in Egypt realized, hey, there's nothing over there. They're not under a darkness over there. We are. Something's different here. So God was teaching that lesson to an entire nation. So what we learn here is that God protected the Israelites, got them out of Egypt to show his power. God intervened again and again and again. Uh, 
when you read about how God has and will intervene in prophecy, read through the book of, of Ezekiel. I think it mentions in Ezekiel 60 or 70 times, they will know that I am God when I begin to intervene. So these are things that uh, are there for our learning. We want to make sure that we don't forget what God has done, that we remember these lessons of history, because the mistakes have caused the catastrophes of history. God doesn't rejoice in the death of the wicked. He wants people to be spared. He wants people to be saved. But these punishments that are going to come, maybe check the scripture in Deuteronomy 29, Deuteronomy 29, verses 23 to 28, where it mentions these coming punishments that are coming in the future are going to be a lesson to the world. A lesson to the world. is that people are going to ask, why did God do this to people that claim to be his chosen people? They claim to be religious. They're going to be asking questions like that, and they're going to be told, because they turned away from me, because they forgot me, because they rejected my laws. So, brethren, these are things we need to remember, the lessons of history about the causes of catastrophes and what can prevent those things. Now, let's wind this up. What does this mean to you? What does it mean to me? Remember the scripture we looked at in the very beginning in Job chapter 12, verse 23, 24, 25. God intervenes in affairs. God intervenes in history. He's in charge of things. He allows things. He brings things to pass. But we also read in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that in trials, God will make a way of escape. He did that for Noah. He did that for Lot. He did that for the Israelites. They had certain lessons to learn. He did that then, and the implication is he will do it again. Again, we don't know when, we don't know how, but the promise is he's going to do those things. What we have to do, we can read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 28 and 29, that our responsibility through these trials is to draw close to God, to seek him with all your heart. And it says, if you do those things, you seek God with all your heart, draw close to God, you will find him. And God will make a way of escape. Now, God not only makes a way of escape, he also expects us to do certain things, like seeking him, drawing close to him. In Ezekiel, in Exodus 15, verse 25, we're told there that if you obey the commandments, God says, I'll put none of the diseases on you that came upon the Egyptians. So there are things that he will do to protect us. But we also read in Proverbs 22 and verse 3, if you see evil ahead, you need to hide yourself. You need to get out of the way. Do what you can to avoid the problems. And I want to just mention here in closing that, you know, we're dealing with this coronavirus situation, which can be a very nasty disease if it winds up uh, striking you. And we've been given a lot of protective advice. You know, wash your hands, social distance, stay, don't get too close to people, uh, quarantine yourself if you're sick, uh, put your mask on, and, and hopefully we'll have a cure in uh, you know, six months or whatever. But, you know, one of the things that's not mentioned today is, is how to take care of the biggest mechanism of defense that you have, 
And that's your immune system. And we have an immune system God has given us to protect us or to help us protect against these diseases. You know, what we're learning, what we're being told is the most susceptible people have certain characteristics. They're overweight considerably. They're overweight considerably. They're elderly. It doesn't mean every old person is going to get uh, coronavirus. But older people generally have uh, a number of pre-existing conditions. And some younger people have pre-existing conditions. This could be, again, obesity. It could be uh, high blood pressure. It could be diabetes. It could be heart disease, which in many cases can be prevented. Not every case, but many people can prevent these things by living differently. In terms of what can you do to strengthen your immune system, just very quickly, number one, exercise. Exercise. Get regular exercise. Don't just sit at home and do nothing or sit in your office. Get out, move, exercise, because that strengthens the immune system. Uh, Number two, get your rest. Oh, I'm so worried I can't sleep. Well, (laughs) you ask God for the protection, trust him, but make sure you're getting enough sleep. You wear yourself down, then you're more susceptible. Some things you can do diet-wise. Make sure your diet has an adequate amount of vitamin C because this strengthens the immune system. You get that from citrus fruits, cantaloupe, papaya, things like that. Uh, Make sure that you're consuming enough vitamin C. Another one would be uh, enough vitamin D. You get that by getting some sunshine. Get outside, sit in the sun a little bit. Uh, You can also get it from foods, uh, milk, uh, cheese, things like that. Again, not too much or you get a lot of calories, but (laughs) you There are things you can do. There are things that you can do. Uh, Vitamin pills, mineral pills also are helpful to supplement. Uh, Manage stress. If you're under stress, you try and do what you can to relieve it. You go for a walk, uh, get some rest, get some sleep, uh, change your environment a little bit. But learn to manage stress. I know when I was finishing up my doctor's degree, I had to get uh, a paper published and a bunch of things done before I graduated, and I had some internal problems that basically turned out to be stress-related. I went home, started exercising. Uh, The symptoms went away. I came back to school after two weeks, and they started to come back. I had to learn how to manage the stress. Uh, Limit your consumption of alcohol and sugar. And some of the jokes that are going around is that uh, the way I deal with this lock-in situation, I just drink. <laughs> Not good. Not good. Limit the amount of alcohol and sugar. If uh, you're carrying around too much weight, this might be a good time to <laughs> make some effort to get rid of it, reduce your uh, liabilities. Uh, but the big thing is to pray. To ask God, God, please protect me, protect my family, protect the work. These are things that you can do. And also obey God. You know, the promise that we read in uh, Exodus 15, verse 25, he said, I'll I'll not put the diseases of Egypt on you if you obey, if you follow my instructions. So, brethren, as we conclude the sermon this afternoon, Let's remember that we've been called out of this world to learn lessons of history and to prepare to teach the rest of the world about God's way of life. 
and how they can how people can prevent catastrophes by learning to obey God's laws, remembering the lessons of history, and learning from those lessons. So, brethren, let's get busy and prepare for a very exciting future. We're going to be able to share some of these lessons with the entire world.